Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 23rd, 2022, and my guest is journalist and author Monica Guzman. She is a senior fellow at Braver Angels, her latest book. And our topic for today is I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Monica, welcome to Econ Talk. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Now, this is an absolutely lovely book. Um, you are a self-professed liberal. Um and I've read and interviewed a number of people on this program about the challenge of conversation, the challenge of partisanship, uh, the level of anger in our in our discourse. And interestingly, I think all those books that I've read and interviewed people about are written by liberals. Uh, but yours is the most um, – maybe the only one that is – fair to conservatives. There are books that pay lip service to fairness, but as a reader, I felt that you were empathetic to both sides of every issue you gave, and often you were very careful to give examples on both sides of people who were either misunderstanding or so on. I'm sure uh, you worked at that, and I just want to congratulate you because in many cases, um, I find that challenging for people to do, regardless Mm -hmm. of what part of the spectrum they're on, of the political spectrum or the ideological spectrum, they often attribute views to their opponents that are either, uh, I think, straw people, unfair, or their point of their book is to save the world by converting other people. And I didn't get that impression from you. So talk about why that's your perspective and whether that was hard for you, you um, as a self-professed person on the left side of the political spectrum. Yeah. This was extremely important to me. It was difficult only because I don't see a lot of models for it, but I am convinced that we need it. So I thought as I was writing the book, a lot about my parents were a politically divided family. I, you know, am liberal. Like you said, I voted for Biden and Clinton. My parents voted for Trump twice. And we don't hold back when we talk to each other. And there have been so many times where I have taken the latest outrage, you know, and brought it to my parents because, uh, because this has to be the thing. Right. And then they, they give me some angle or, or some question that is a lot less malevolent than where I thought this was coming from on that side. And it, it turns the volume down in my head and I go, Oh yeah, I was, I was missing that. I was missing something. All right. And so having had that experience so many times made me think, if I if I allow some of those impressions, you know, the the anger to go unnuanced uh, in my book, if I if I give one example and then allow the reader to say, oh, yeah, that's just, you know, obviously because the other side is crazy, evil or stupid, then I'm doing a disservice because it's it, I just don't think that's true. I think that we fall into that trap frequently uh, in our disagreements and also just when we look at the other side. Well, so many people do think it's true. And, and I work. I try. I mean, we don't always succeed, but I do try to be empathetic to people who 
don't agree with me and respectful of them. Um, when did that happen for you? Uh, it's not, I don't think, I don't think we're hardwired that way. I think we're hardwired the other way. We spend mm-hmm. a lot of time on this program talking about tribalism and political tribes are one form of tribalism. What clicked for you uh, that caused you to, to be that, I would say, respectful? I think a fair bit of it came from journalism. All the times that I've approached some source and I've, you know, not even a particularly controversial story. I've just had a narrative in my head of who they are and what they're going to give me. And I pre-write the story in my head and I know what it's going to be about. And then we start talking and I'm fascinated by something I didn't expect or there's a motivation that I didn't see coming. And then here we go. We're just off on another tangent and everything's gotten so much more rich because of it. And that that's happened so many times that I guess... I guess I've just, it's become sort of silly in my head to judge people without engaging them to, you know, not, not approach individuals and see what they're really about, uh, to not have those open-ended questions. I think, I think largely it's been about that. In the book, I talk about the difference between puzzles and mysteries. Uh, the author Ian Leslie, who wrote a book about curiosity, gets into this, and puzzles are you know, problems that you solve, you already know the shape of the thing you're you're making. You just have a couple of pieces you need to go find and then put in the right place, plug them in. But mysteries, you don't know the shape. Every piece you pick up changes the shape, it draws up a bunch of new questions. You, you never really know where you're going. And that's people. I think that in polarized times, we treat each other like puzzles. You know, we read a thought piece uh, that's written really smartly. And we think we now understand this whole group of people. We now have the shortcut for why they do what they do and we can judge them accordingly. And that's, that's going to be okay. But, but people are mysteries and there's just so much we're missing when we do this to each other, including a clear view of the world itself. I, I think that we are so divided, we're blinded and we're, we're not even seeing the world for what it is, but for the projections swirling in our heads. Yeah, Anne Leslie was a guest on Econ Talk talking about that book. Uh, it's a lovely book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I, of course, love, as listeners will not be surprised, I love the puzzles versus mysteries dichotomy. I think it's a really important way to look at most of life. Most of life's a mystery. Uh, puzzles are pleasant because we can solve them. Uh, so we tend to push a lot of things, I think, into the puzzle uh, mm-hmm. box when they belong in the mystery box. But I want to ask you about something that you didn't write about. Uh, you write a lot about conversation per se, and we'll come back and talk about that because I think that's very valuable. But I want to I want to ask you about something that isn't um, so obvious, perhaps. Your book's about political disagreements mostly, uh, and particularly partisan disagreements, ideological disagreements. But some of the lessons here apply equally strongly to something like marriage or mm-hmm. friendship. And one of the things that it took me a long time to understand is that Often in our marriages or our long-term friendships, we have a narrative in our head about the other person, and we fill in their lines effortlessly for them. We know what they're going to say. In fact, that's often a measure quote of a good marriage. People will say, oh, we can finish each other's sentences. But I think sometimes we fall down on the job as partners, spouses, friends, because we leap to those conclusions, assume as you point out in the book, as we do sometimes about our political opponents, what they're about. And 
it's surprisingly difficult to step outside those scripts that we have for mm-hmm. each other. And I just think that's such an important part of being a, a human being that is that we don't talk about. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I like that you kind of <clears throat> made it sort of use the language of scripts because we do that online to each other all the time, too. More and more people take what they see on social media. Somebody makes you know, what What could be sort of an innocent remark? You know, if you're, if you're on the left, you see somebody lament the looting that happened uh, during, you know, protests in the summer of 2020. But you've seen the script before. You mean someone on the right. And well, 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 uh, but it could be someone on the left judging someone on the left, but you're, it could be anybody. But it's yeah, it's you, you see someone on the right, perhaps. Yes. Um, lament the looting of businesses. And you think I've seen this movie before what they really want to say. But but can't they're just trolling us or teasing us is that they're racist, you know, stuff like that starts to happen when we do this to each other, when when we just predict and we we believe we already have the whole story. Um, And so, you know, when when we when we're engaging each other less and judging each other more, that's just that's the swirl. We're going to keep swirling away from each other and keep getting more and more misinformed about each other. I, I find it interesting. We. We care a lot about facts and truth, but that doesn't seem to apply to the truth about people's perspectives. That's where it seems we don't, we don't obsess about truth. But I just think that's, that's really killing us because when you, when people feel understood, that's when you can build trust. And without sufficient trust, we can't collectively search for truth. Instead, we'll have different groups of people finding their own truth and then fighting each other about it, developing their own different languages. And again, we sort of spin apart uh, in this really unsustainable way. So so I feel almost uh, sometimes I feel like a traitor to journalism because journalism is about truth. And I have so many conversations with people who are saying things I I'm pretty darn sure are untrue, but I don't make the conversation about that. I don't sit there. And try to convince them of something that they're not going to be convinced by in this conversation. Instead, I go behind the conversation about truth to the conversation about what's meaningful. Who are they? What led them to these beliefs? What are the concerns and hopes and fears that animate, right? And then what can I present about how I see those things? And how can our perspectives sort of intermingle and build trust and build the kind of connection where maybe someday something could cross that makes them see something in a different light or makes me see something in a different light. It's getting harder and harder to calibrate with each other in that, in that way. Uh, when we don't seem to prioritize making sure we get each other right. Yeah. And I think one of the other perspectives on this um, that makes it harder, one of the other facts about this is, is social media where if I ever admit I was wrong or ever admit that I had a, an imperfect view of the other side, or I've come to believe something different, I get savaged. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I recently tweeted something about Elon Musk and Twitter that I thought was pretty innocent. It's pretty stupid of me because the innocent part of it, whether it's stupid to tweet, I don't know. But I, I tweeted uh, something about Elon Musk, and I didn't, it didn't cross my mind that there's an enormous... This is the naive, stupid part. It didn't cross my mind that there are probably millions of people on Twitter, certainly hundreds of thousands, who don't like Elon Musk. 
period. Mm -hmm. And we're going to use my tweet to um, express that that feeling. (laughs) And Mm. I started getting these bizarre misinterpretations of what I've written with leaps of logic from what they claimed I'd said. And I thought, and I'd write politely back, uh, not my point, not what I said. Sometimes I write, I may have miswritten it. I may have communicated poorly. Actually, what I meant, and then I realized they're not interested in what really what I really meant. <laughs> they just yeah, want to yeah. jump on Elon Musk. And 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 what was fascinating for me is that emotionally, the hatred that I was the dis, I would say not hatred the disdain I got for my opinion, the one that they interpreted me as saying, uh, it it did. I, I was surprised how much it bothered me. That they had mm. misinterpreted, which is ironic. I'm on the web. I'm on Twitter. I've got all the time. Don't I know yeah. this? And I realized I don't really go into some of those darker corners. Yeah. And usually what I've done in that situation, I just block people who are rude or misinterpret me. And I thought, you know, I don't really need to. I should just yeah. try to let this roll off me. And it was harder than I thought. But I, I got to the point where it's like, oh, yeah, they're not arguing with me. They're on a different platform over there, different grandstand, a different soapbox than mm-hmm. the one I was on. I actually like to think I'm educating people. I'm getting people to imagine <laughs> an idea. Eh, we're so interested in that, I don't think. And I just let it be no. in their own world. It's okay. But it's a, it's amazing oh. how that social media response can motivate your own um, your own viewpoints and what you're willing to say and how you're willing to say it. Absolutely. I, I think of a couple things here. The other day I stumbled on, a, I think it's from the Talmud, uh, you know, an old quote. Um, things are not, we don't see things as they are, but as we are. And Jonathan Haidt has done some wonderful writing and research on social media as sort of a space where we throw darts at each other. <clears throat> and in your example, I thought of a game of dodgeball, you know, something comes and if it's a weapon, I'm going to pick it up. Even if you didn't intend it as a weapon or something I can use to boost up my side or what have you, that's how I'm going to use it. I don't care how you meant it. That's how I'm going to use it, you know? Uh, And then I'm going to throw it at somebody. And then a lot of us are going to throw it at somebody and you're going to feel like, what was that? Right. But, but I, but I think it's so true these days that we are so in our own thoughts I, you know, this is funny. I, I, this thought just crossed my mind. I'm a big science fiction fan and I grew up reading all the, you know, amazing science fiction that was mostly about space travel that, that by now, that's what we would have worked on is, is getting out, right? Getting out of the planet, exploring. But what we did instead was we, we, we took all that technological energy and used it for personal communication. And so we've created a whole universe in our minds that connect our minds, that connect every thought, that share every thought and zip it around the world, lightning speed, you know, that create movements and topple governments, but also drive us insane and make our kids more anxious than ever. And this is this is the universe we've created is a universe of our own thoughts. Um, and so how we how each of us, the posture each of us takes toward that, that swirling. I mean, we're. It's so funny, right, to think that we are uninformed, but we've never had more information. We've never had more information right. zipping around us. So what's going on? Yeah, I, a number of uh, people in the last year I've noticed have written with sadness about the naivete we had when the Internet was started, which and I had it for sure, which was all this information. Oh, we're, we're going to be wiser, right? How could we be – how could it not be the case? Uh, and, of course – there are a lot of reasons, it turns out. <laughs> uh, 
uh, I've written an essay on it. I'll link to it. But uh, that irony is so painful, right? The idea that, mm-hmm. that you and I can communicate. We've never met. We may never meet. Mm-hmm. Here we are talking, having a real conversation. Uh, I'm in Israel. You're in Seattle. That's a magnificent triumph of that's better than straight. In a way, it's so much better than going to Mars. Mars is a pretty tough environment. And this is amazing. Yeah. And yeah. yet, so much of this kind of miraculous interaction is not turning out to be as helpful as we had hoped. Yeah, exactly. And so much of it is psychology. We're, I think, thanks to a, a rising awareness of, of this, right? Because technology zips ahead real fast and it takes us a while to understand what's going on. We now have more information swirling around about our psychology. We, we are tribalistic. Uh, we do sort into groups that are like-minded and there are consequences when we share our instincts, we share our blind spots. And, and a lot of the story of polarization is sort of that, you know, <laughs> just, just spread out. There's, there's valid disagreements and there's all kinds of problems to solve. But unfortunately, where we find ourselves now is so afraid and so kind of taken by projections and hyperbole that a lot of our policy is reactionary. A lot of things are rash. They're not that thoughtful. And one of the tragedies to me is when I think of, when I think of the extraordinary creative and human capital we have at our disposal, you know, think of how much more educated we are. You know, public health, despite the pandemic, is still much better than it used to be. You know, all these ways that we're here, we're showing up. But then the filter of the way we talk to each other seems to take like the potential output of 100% and bring it down to like 5%. Like the good stuff coming out of this is just not that great. If when you think about everything we have here, we ought to be able to collaborate. We ought to be able to understand each other and get so much more advanced, like level up our thinking about these tough problems, understand why they're tough. They put good values into tension with each other. It's not good versus evil. Stop. Like this is, this is what's dumbing everything down, you know, but we allow these things to swirl and swirl and swirl because we get something out of it. We get pride, we get prestige, we get status. Um, and it's killing us. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I've often lamented on here that what extraordinary miracle achievement of human creativity it was to develop a vaccine in a weekend uh, against COVID. And yet that scientific achievement has become a political football, which is really so unimaginable. All the things to argue about and to misunderstand Mm -hmm. and to... And as you point out, not to make progress. It should be easy. We have access to incredible data. We have ways of bringing people together to share experiences for the purpose of understanding what happened more effectively. And so little of what we've done is devoted to that, which we desperately need for, quote, the next time. And instead, it's, oh, let's let's punt this football around. Let me, uh, let, let me race down to your end of the field if I can, and you'll try to race down to the other end. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, such a Let's tragedy. use it as weapons. Yeah. yeah. It's the same thing as that dodgeball game yeah, yeah. again, you know, how can, how can we weaponize this? And yeah, it is, it is such a tragedy. And to me, one of the things it shows is that, you know, we still have quotes like, well, it's not rocket science, right? We have a sense in our head of what is most difficult. Like, well, what's most difficult is probably like straight physics, Stephen Hawking stuff, yeah. right? I don't know. I think we're in a world where good, responsible uh, human communication is the most difficult and critical skill there is. Yeah. Because those doctors communicating about COVID knew their medicine, 
those those politicians, you know, there were lots of good politicians that wanted to serve society in this moment. Right. But the communication I've talked with lots of conservatives, lots of liberals. It was the communication that needed work. Well, I get you know, I recently interviewed Agnes Callard, and it's not the first guest we've had a discussion, a contentious discussion about whether human beings are making progress. And it's clear to me that we're making a lot of progress on the technological side, the scientific side. The communication side is not so, not so clear. And yeah. those are, the, as you say, those are really the hard problems. Uh, being a better human being than you were a year ago that's immensely more difficult than, say, improving the mileage of, an, uh, of a gas-powered car. <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. Maybe we should put a little more attention on helping each other get better at that. The, thing, the funny thing is, like, there's little we can do with the laws of nature to make rocket science itself harder. But we, we can yeah. continually make our own communication harder yeah. because – because we mix together more because we, you know, now, now we can talk all the way around the world. You know, we, we keep making it harder for ourselves. So that means we have to keep leveling up. And of course, that's what your book's about. Let's let's come back to the uh, I, actually, I just want to add one more thing. I want to add a, just a little tiny bit of, of optimism here. We're, we're a little bit pessimistic right now. I, uh, yeah. I did a I did a Twitter poll this week um, for fun on whether Steve Jobs would be uh, happy or unhappy with how the iPhone has transformed our culture. And a thousand people, I did it over a day and a bit, a thousand people voted. It was 5347 or so that Jobs would have been happy. And I call that a very depressing, that's a low number, 53%. And of course, it's not, we have no idea what Steve Jobs would really think. It's more of what I think what people think he should feel given the state of the world. And I, one listener, one Twitter follower of mine wrote, I apologize, I don't remember who it was, said, um, it'll turn out okay. It may be horrible now, or there may be things you don't like now. Um, and I have to admit that for myself, if you had, I'm not, I'm happy there were smartphones in the world. I think it's a glorious thing, but I also see a lot of downside to it. Uh, but his point, which I think is, is the ideal, uh, most optimistic you can be, is that it's new. And we will develop norms to deal with it. Those norms, he didn't write this. I would just add this. Maybe a norm will develop. Uh, as Jonathan Haidt, who you quoted, mentioned earlier, Jonathan Haidt said, you know, there should be no smartphones in, I think he said, middle school. Maybe that norm will emerge. Maybe there'll be a norm that at dinner or at meals, we will all agree to put our smartphones away. These are personal things that, that we've sometimes done in our household or in other settings. You know, keeping the Jewish Sabbath, we put the phone away for 25 hours. Somehow, it's easy uh, to do that. But the rest of the time, full use every minute, way too much screen time. And so that, that's my only bit of optimism. You want to react to that? Yeah, the, the optimism that norms, norms will come. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, it's taken me a very long time with these technologies in every way that I've swirled in my personal life in and out of them to finally come to a stage where I feel like I'm in control. It took me a long time. Just this spring, I took social media and email off of my phone and thought it wouldn't last and I wouldn't be able to do it. I did it. I did it. I did it, Russ. And you know what? My life is infinitely better. Uh, and here we are. And I think it, it just... 
my husband likes talking about the power of simplicity on the other side of complexity, meaning like you've slogged, you know, you've tried, you've struggled, and then you come to a simple solution that wasn't possible before because you still had too many uh, loose threads that you had to kind of work out. So it took me about a decade, you know, to find this balance. And I, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think that we will get there um, because we're having more of an open conversation where researchers are looking at the costs and we're asking ourselves what what really we have always asked ourselves, which is let's make sure that we use technology and it does not use us. So let's go to the topic of conversation. Uh, you did a remarkable thing in uh, February of 2016. Uh, you, for three days, logged all of your conversations. Uh, tell us what that meant. <laughs> what did you mean by what do you mean by what did what did you actually do? Uh, what how much detail and what was the, the point of that? And what did you learn? Yeah, I had a, I had a chart. I walked around, um, walked around with this chart and every single exchange that I had, not digitally, it was only the in-person ones. Um, every single exchange that I had, I, I marked, um, and coded in a, in a bunch of different ways, like the duration of the exchange, um, you know, whether it was, uh, like who it was with, um, you know, I captured, captured certain things. I think the start and the stop, um, of every single conversation I had for three days, it was exhausting. And then at the end, uh, I used it to ask myself questions about what what do longer conversations make possible? What, what's happening with shorter conversations? What's happening with the relationship, uh, you know, of the people ha- engaging in those in those exchanges? Um, it was absolutely fascinating, and I, I was I was just so curious to, to test or just to observe myself. Like, when do those exchanges happen? I mean, I wrote down even like the hello, hello to somebody just passing by. I wrote down everything. Um, and it was really cool to see uh, how many longer conversations I was having, you know, 20 minutes or longer. They're fairly rare in our lives. Oh, yeah. They really are. And um, and what came out of that, right? And it it helped me realize that what comes out of conversations is so much more than the logical content of what you're talking about. We're not just robots teaching each other, informing each other. We're connecting. Uh, we're building bonds. We're building trust. We're feeling good. Um, we're, we're enjoying ourselves. And so I rated it on enjoyment. I rated it on how much it seemed to have strengthened a relationship uh, among the people engaging in the conversation, uh, things like that. And, oh man. And, and yeah, it's like, it's been sort of a lifelong. It goes back for me. This, this obsession with conversation. It is such a sophisticated, extraordinary skill that we all have. And, and we don't we don't really stop and appreciate that all the little micro decisions that we make based on someone's gesture, how they respond, whether they're sitting there silent, who knows, right? We're trying to exchange meaning, and it's 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 an amazing thing that we know how to do, and it's made it so much possible. But it can also destroy us, right? When we don't use it, when we limit our tool set. Um, and anyway, so yeah, conversation is an extraordinarily powerful medium. It's the most powerful platform there is. Do you ever? think how strange it is that we don't, at least I didn't, and I don't know anyone who does, teach their children how to have a conversation. That You say mm-hmm. it's this amazing tool we have. It's a tool that we develop through experience, but very little self-reflection and almost no instruction. Your book is an attempt to provide that instruction, and it's, it's full of practical suggestions. Uh, but mm-hmm. don't you think that's bizarre? It is. It is. And honestly, I think one of the only reasons we're even talking about conversation is because technology came came around and sort of splintered it into all these little pieces. And we're sort of seeing the consequences of conversation being splintered and and 
and engaging a conversation in places where it wasn't really designed. We didn't evolve to, to do this. Uh, and so now we're, we're going back to the roots and going, what, wait, what even is this? And what do we lose when we're changing the ways we can have it and the changing with the ways we can engage? Uh, but yeah, we, we, we don't, I, I don't think that we teach each other how to do it because we haven't had to. I just don't think we've, we've had to. Um, and we have evolved instinctively so many sophisticated ways to read and have radar on at conversations to work on the emotional level and the informative level and the, and the safety level of our own security when we're in a conversation and persuasion and debate. And like all those things seem to be so automatic and we haven't had to stop and, and dismantle them and, and dissect them and, and see how it all works and comes together. Yeah. If I had to give one converse, piece of advice about conversation or one instruction or uh, Something I I write about in my book, Wild Problems, I would say, and this is almost impossible advice to take, by the way, so I don't give it with a grain of salt. I give it with the understanding that (laughs) it may not be that useful, Mm -hmm. but the, the advice I would give is when you go into a conversation, do not think about what you're going to get out of it. And I think so often we go into conversations either implicitly or explicitly saying, you know, how can I get the most out of this conversation for me? Rather than let's produce something together. And I don't know what it'll be exactly. And I'm excited to see where it might go. And mm-hmm. I have to make room for you because otherwise it's a monologue. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. And there's so many things that are getting in the way of some of uh, how we allow space for the unpredictability of conversation, including how many of our conversations now are on Zoom, how many people are working remotely. When you work remotely, you, you get together on a Zoom, right? And you have to have an agenda to structure how you move through things. And so you get accustomed to agendas, to predictability. Um, and on Zoom, it's impossible to just turn to the person next to you and go, hey, you know, I love your the earrings you're wearing today. Like, what's up? You know, and to make those little connections, you're always in plenary. And so the way it limits, you know, those moments of spontaneous interaction are, are pretty incredible. Um but yeah, we're we're finding ourselves in this place where we're so busy. We've got so much going on. We're on our phones. We've got a lot, lot to do. And so the actual time that we could spend on loose conversation, it just feels like we have to make it useful and effective and productive. And and that kind of kills some of its spirit. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'd be curious if people actually polled themselves. Like how many conversations longer than 20 minutes, not digital, do you have in your day? Of course, some of those aren't good. They're bad conversations. Um, yeah. They could be, I can't believe it. I couldn't get a word in, you know, or vice versa. I, boy, I, what was I thinking? I just talked about myself the whole time. I was terrible. And you mm-hmm. leave that conversation empty and feeling that you missed an opportunity. Living in mm-hmm. Israel, People linger over meals longer here than they than they do in the United States, in my experience. Might not be accurate, but that's my assessment. And it's not uncommon for people to have a two-hour meal, uh, which is, I think, somewhat uncommon in the United States on average. Um, and if you go into a, a meal with a friend without an agenda and you let it go where it can go, it can be exhilarating. And there really is nothing like it in it, – it, it's a remarkable, remarkable thing. Mm-hmm. And as you point out, I think it's a cr- tremendous observation. 
it's it's usually not wow i learned so much or wow that was i was so clever or mm-hmm. oh i want to remember that joke or that story it's more just what a great experience with another human being and we often yeah. don't think about that it's such a powerful and important thing that you that you um that you discuss in your book along those lines and i think it's underappreciated yeah and you know one of the things that i've also really come around to as being such a gift of conversation of that kind of conversation is our ability to discover ourselves um we're always having a conversation is the conversation with ourselves we're judging ourselves you know we're saying i should have done this or go hurry up do that you know there's a dialogue within us and for us to be able to in fact, just last night, I had a couple of very good friends over and, you know, over wine and dinner, we sort of nourished our, you know, nourished our bodies and suddenly like stuff comes out, right? We ended up having an extraordinarily deep, profound conversation about life, death, and then friendship. And <clears throat> there's a dialogue I've been having with myself, <clears throat> excuse me, about our friendship. And then I felt like I could just bring a little bit of that dialogue in to sort of test it with them and see what they would say. And based on what they said, I ended up kind of reframing some of the stuff I was thinking of. And it's kind of, it's sort of changed our relationship for the better. And it's so cool. (laughs) And it's so cool. And it's not like that wasn't an agenda. You know, we didn't, I don't know what we were going to talk about, but, but it was, it was that, that feeling safe enough to share something that's in your head that can, that can just swirl around and get get some feedback and trusting that the other people would know where you're coming from and wouldn't misunderstand you and that you're connected enough that you can say with your words but also with your giggles and your gestures you know what you mean um was just magical and and I think that uh the book my book talks a lot about curiosity and I've I've thought a lot about how curiosity is a form of caring it's a gift you know how many times have you been you're you're suddenly with a, a group of friends or people who know you or coworkers or whatever and you have something you need to do, but, but maybe, you know, there's something that just happened to you, makes you feel good and, and it'd be cool to share, but you know, now's not the time, right? right we got to get down to business. And then when one of them goes, Hey, how, how was your day? And you kind of release a little hint about that. Well, this, you know, this cool thing happened, but let's, let's just get to work. And they go, no, no, tell me what happened. You tell them what happened and they go, wow. Like, tell me more. How did you feel? That was amazing. And, and it's that, oh my gosh, they want to listen to me. They, they, you know, they see me. They, they want to know what's up. They're curious about me. I think a lot of our discussions online, especially around politics, are about the ideas, right? We, we focus on the ideas that's the center of gravity instead of focusing on each other and our journey through this world and how we interpret world events and how they mix in with sort of our values and experiences and, and who we become as people and, and our ideas, uh, our ideas about how we should all thrive together. That's a fascinating thing, but we usually get stuck just talking about the idea and not, not getting curious about the person, which can just brighten and, and open invisibly this space that we can fill with the most profound things. Yeah. I've never thought about this, but when I think of the word empathy, and if, if, if you and I were having this conversation face to face and we were having it in a coffee shop and, you came in and I saw tension or anxiety on your face. Um, the empathy that I normally think of in that kind of setting is I want to show Monica that I've noticed that she's not 100%, assuming we knew each other, right? Uh, and I rec- it'd be hard to recognize it in a, in a new friend, perhaps. But that's what empathy is. Empathy, in my mind, empathy is I want to show you by my face in response to your situation 
that I'm aware of what you're dealing with and I'm empathetic. I'm, I feel bad for you. And if you told me, mm-hmm. you blurted out, oh yeah, I just, you know, I had this issue with it at work or with my a friend or a coworker and I go, oh, that's too bad. And, and that's empathy in my mind. But you really raise a deeper, more powerful form of empathy, which is curiosity. And I don't usually, we don't mm-hmm. usually, I don't anyway, think of them as related, but they are, which it's yeah. not just, oh, what's wrong? And then you tell me and I make the face of empathy. It's rather, I actually have real curiosity, not feigned emotional support for, or real even, if I care about you, but just showing that it's more, it's more than that. It's trying to understand what you're dealing with, going through, struggling with. And that's, I, I don't think mm-hmm. of those two as related, but you, you, you're suggesting there, and I think it's very beautiful. I think you're absolutely right. And, it, and what a way to give support, right? That conversation we always have with ourselves can get pretty toxic. And, and if somebody actually shows enough interest that we could explore it with them and we trust them not to mishandle it, it's awesome. Yeah. You know, it's, it's awesome. We learn about ourselves and, and what, a, what a gift to give each other. Yeah, you, you write something I believe deeply and so hard. Before I gave my advice about <laughs> conversations, meaning don't don't try to maximize the value from it or don't have an agenda about what you're going to get out of it. I love that. And I, I mentioned in passing, it's really hard advice to take because I think we're very hardwired to think of ourselves first. Mm-hmm. And similarly, you say something I think incredibly profound that's really hard to take to heart, which is good listening is not silent waiting. Explain that and and um, maybe give us some idea of how we might actually remember that. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, you know, so much of the time, especially in disagreement, we have a point to make and we want that point validated and we want to win. And there's just so many layers of objectives that get in the way of real connection and trust building that could actually get us somewhere. Uh, but I talk about how listening. It's it's so much it's more than. Uh, you know, paying attention, being present, making sure you're not just waiting for your turn to speak. Uh, listening is showing people they matter. That's what it is. That's that's the criteria we each have. Have I been heard? <clears throat> Do I feel like I mattered in that? Do I feel demeaned, neglected, ignored, um, you know, shoved aside in one way and undervalued? Uh, but but yeah, like, and the thing is, we we all matter. And I think when we lose sight of that, uh, we, we just lose sight of ourselves. I mean, we, we start to just kind of stray and going back to that thing about anytime you're in a disagreement, uh, even online, looking at what the other side is saying and you go, oh, they're crazy. They're stupid. They're evil. You're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. That's it. No, you're wrong. You can be pretty sure of that, <clears throat> that it does not come down to that. And if you believe that it does, you are already condescending, you know, when you look at that side, you are you are approaching it with condescension and, and you can't be curious. Um, and that kind of shuts down everything before it starts. If you if you come in knowing that, thinking that that is the case, now you're going to come into conversation and prove it. You're going to prove to them how crazy they are. Good luck with that. <laughs> we're not we're not really set up to accept that about ourselves. Right. Even if it were true, which it almost never I mean, never is right. Very, very few cases. So so I think we have to get out of the mania of of believing those kinds of untruths and, and asking ourselves instead, you know, what am I missing? If it seems crazy to me, then I don't have access to the reasons that make it sensible to them. 
So let me go figure out what those reasons are. You know, let me, let me, let me open, open things up a bit. Um, being a journalist, I, I get discouraged because so much opinion journalism uses those things. You know, headlines that say this or that thing is crazy. This or that person is crazy. I'm like, God, <laughs> we're modeling these judgments for each other. And it's just really cool. But it's always wrong. It's always wrong. Everybody has their reasons. And the other thing I would just add, and I, again, I, it's so hard to remember this in the heat of a conversational moment, is if I'm not actually listening, but waiting to talk, mm-hmm. I'm objectifying you. I'm using you as a tool for my own self-expression. And of course, I want to make you laugh or I might want to impress you. Mm-hmm. I might want to earn your respect. So, I, you know, a lot of sometimes of our speech is uh, purposive in that way. But you're suggesting there's a different purpose, which is just noticing the other person and treating them with deep respect, the same respect you'd want to receive from yeah. someone else. And yeah. it's um, if we objectify people that way as tools for our own self-expression or self-confidence, uh, we've, we've missed a tremendous human opportunity. Yeah. And we're just working on our own projection again. Yeah. You know, we, we, here we are, have access to another person, a source of external truth. And we're not, we're not wondering about it. We're not going to figure out what that actually is. It makes me think of, you know, what folks on Twitter did to you with your Elon Musk tweet, right? Imagine if all those people had said, do you mean this right. or this, yeah. Russ? Question of clarification. I work at Braver Angels, which is a, an amazing large nonprofit working on depolarizing America. And in, in our own culture internally, um, we, you know, somebody proposes something and then we leave the space open for questions of clarification. So before people give comments, that's what we do. Wait, what did you mean? And so we each kind of query our own way that we heard what was said. And then if there's something where we're like, what? That's when we ask. And the way that clears things up, right? And it, and it models, we're trying to get you right before we use what you say. Before we dissect and judge it, let's make sure we know what you mean. Um, and so imagine like the revolution, right? If, if people on social media ask questions of clarification before jumping on any reaction to what is being said. Yeah, actually, that, that Steve Jobs poll, somebody tweeted back at me uh, how I was doing for the thousandth time. Uh, I was indulging in uh, technological determinism. Uh, and I thought, I don't know what that is, but evidently <laughs> I do it a lot, which is a little bit alarming. And I simply wrote back, huh. uh, I don't know what that is. Can you explain? And a wonderful moment on Twitter, and there are many, by the way, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Twitter and it's, and mm. it's when it's done well. He wrote back, are you serious? And he meant it as an actual question. And he said something like, are you serious? I mean that. You really don't know what it is? And I said, no, I don't. And hmm. I didn't feel like using Google. Obviously, I could have found out. Uh, sure. But this person was accusing me of something that was a, a real habit in his mind of my discourse. And um, we had a clarification moment. And I said, I don't know. I'm, I am serious. I don't know what it is. And he explained what it was. And, you know, other people chimed in. We had an actual conversation on Twitter. <laughs> and it was um, a rare moment. 
That's great. My friend Angel Eduardo talks about how social media is the boss level of discourse, you know, gamer speak. And it it really is. It's not that great conversations can't happen on social media. It's that all the ways that we communicate goodwill when we do have our full toolbox of communication at hand, you know, gestures and giggles and all tone and everything, you have to translate that into words somehow or, or over time. You know, the fact that he could say, are you serious? And you didn't read it as... And an affront, right? Because that's what we on social media, we tend to read things in in sort of a mean voice, yeah. even if it wasn't spoken that way. So to get past that, you need to build a bit of a connection or you need to use your words. No, I really mean it. I don't mean that in a mean way. You know, things we wouldn't normally have to say because you can see the smile on my yeah. face. You can tell I mean you no harm. Yeah. You can tell I'm not trying to use what you say. I'm just trying to understand. Okay. Uh, talk about your um, your bus trip, which is a big part of the book. We haven't got to yet. Uh, you took a group of people in Seattle, uh, which uh, tends to vote very much um, in a blue way, to Oregon, to a county where it was the polar opposite. It was a red county. Uh, what was the, Why did you do that? It was a crazy idea. And how did it turn mm-hmm. out? Yeah, we did it because the Seattle-based newsletter that me and my co-founder started was all about being curious and honest, you know, bold and inclusive. And we had all these values, right? And then the 2016 presidential election happened. The city felt dead the next morning, just dead. And people, because we were, we want to be curious. We we wanted to help people understand. But man, Seattle's full of blue people. And even the red people, don't tend to speak up much and they're not, they're not terribly welcome. <laughs> and so, so we got notes from readers going, I, I want to be curious, but I don't know how, I don't know anyone or they're really far away. And, I, and there's still these lifestyles I don't understand. So we ended up stumbling on this interactive map that showed if you plugged in your County anywhere in the United States, it would show you the nearest County geographically, geographically to yours that voted exactly opposite in the presidential election. So you plug in King County, Washington, where Seattle is, and you get Sherman County, Oregon, this county of 2000 people on the Columbia River, north part of the state, all agriculture, lots of wheat farming. So me and my co-founder were like, could we, what could we do? So we asked our readers, if we were to figure out a way to, you know, connect these worlds, would you all be down? And, And a bunch of people said, yes, oh my gosh, it'd be amazing. So one thing led to another, met some incredible people down in Sherman County, you know, Googled, found this woman who has been covering the community and, you know, in a small blog for years and years. She's in her 80s. She connected us with someone who is now a dear friend, Sandy McNabb, an agricultural agent in the county. And we we partnered to create this experience, Um, ended up taking a five hour bus ride down the 19 people from King County who signed up. We met about 16 people in the little tiny town of Morrow. Uh, population like, I don't know, less than 300. And we had a lot of conversations that were not about politics before we got to the politics. We did a tour, uh, a bus tour of the wheat farms. We um, shared a meal. They had donated a meal. And one of the most powerful moments was when um, a farmer named Darren Paget, you know, stood up and pointed to the leftover sandwiches on everyone's plate and said, you know, if you knew what it took to get that sandwich on your plate. <laughs> You know, just looking at everyone in the city, you could hear pin drop. Uh, no one from Seattle ever goes to Sherman County, but the people of Sherman County have to go to the cities. Their kids live in the cities. They have to go to the city, but, th- but no one goes there. It was 
oh my gosh, what we got out of it is too long of a conversation. But among, I think the thing I'll mention now is one of the most pernicious things we believe is that people who oppose what we support must hate what we love. So a bunch of folks from King County had ideas in their heads about people who voted for Trump must hate the environment, must hate gay people, must hate, you know, name your thing. Um, And among the things we learned was there's more variables we didn't consider, right? That if you're in that frame of mind, there's other things you didn't consider. And these farmers, like many of them brought up this thing we'd never heard of, the waters of the United States rule. Had you heard of that? I hadn't heard of that. Well, (laughs) and it's this, it's this, you know, part of our law that um, determines when um, the federal government can kind of claim, you know, regulation authority over a body of water. And for a lot of farmers, if there's a really heavy rain in a valley and suddenly there's a pond where there wasn't one, could the government come in and say, okay, that's our land. We have to regulate that by. And it sounds absurd, but there's actually been some really close calls and pretty weird stuff going on in that. So for a lot of those farmers who just operate at these little margins, I mean, farming independently is a really tough game. Um, they just don't trust Democrats. They absolutely did not trust Democrats to even care about that. But they trusted Republicans uh, and they trusted the businessman, you know, that they elected president. Nothing to do with social issues at all, you know. And so ah. <laughs> and so on the way back, you know, I, I talked to people and a lot of them mentioned like, what is the United States rule? Who knew? Right. So, so th- that's an example. I think it's a really powerful example of when we don't get close, when we try to solve these mysteries from a distance, we don't, we don't see what we're missing. Things that can take us away from this idea, this false idea that people are crazy or evil or stupid and, and, and closer to an idea that they have their own reasons. And the, the our media is not going to give us all those, right? We, sometimes we have to check the reality. We have to go and talk to people ourselves. And that's one of the, one of the things I think is the most important thing we can do for our democracy is get curious about each other with each other, you know, not by sitting down on a Sunday and and reading a bunch of statistics or some narrative that some expert has created. There's no expert on you and there's no expert on me. Like I'm the expert on me. Talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to me. (laughs) That's beautiful. There's an idea that if you want to lose weight, tell your friends you're on a diet so that kind of way of holding yourself <laughs> yeah. accountable when they put out the cookies and you're eating the fourth one, it gets harder to take the fifth one. That would be the, the <laughs> argument. Um, has writing has writ, writing this book put pressure on you to be a better conversationalist and a better listener and a better political, a more tolerant political interactor with your parents or with your friends? Uh, or is it kind of just always been pretty easy for you for a while mm-hmm. has, has the book itself forced you to do anything you you realized oh my gosh i'm the author of this book i better not fall in the blank <laughs> i definitely feel you know in, in public spaces i i sort of feel that pressure like oh i better i better display these skills yeah. right but but to to add a little complicating nugget to that uh, i was in north carolina doing a book talk and meeting with the braver angels alliance there we have chapters all over the country it's really great but um, my husband was saying, as we were coming home from the book talk, he said, you know, I almost raised a hand, Monica, and, and asked you a question that would have been pretty challenging. I was like, what? And he's like, well, I was going to say, I, I've been there for a lot of your conversations with your parents. And he goes, and you don't do anything uh, of what you tell people to do in your book. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, 
like he was exaggerating, right? There's a lot of things we do. We acknowledge each other's good points, et cetera. But, but here's the thing is like with me and my parents, there is so much trust that we call each other names. We, we can yell at each other about some of these political issues. We've, we've built up that resilience where we don't have to kind of guard, um, you know, and take careful steps, right? But do that with someone with whom you don't have that built up and you don't have that trust and you're just beginning and it's not going to work. Right. So a lot of the, a lot of the tactics are about that, but I, but I think it's important to say that, you know, the reason I wrote this book about curiosity and I think it's important for our political moment is not because I think we need to talk everything to death or that, or because understanding is the end goal. The end goal is persuasion. The end goal absolutely is persuasion. We, we need a society where we can mix our ideas generously and the best ideas actually win. You know, we can say, I want my ideas to win, but guess what? You're not, you're not a genius. I mean, maybe, but I mean, not, no one person has all these answers. Sorry. I don't care how educated you are, how intelligent you think you are. You know, the best answers have to come out of communion of ideas with each other. And presented generously and, and interacting well. That's the society we want. But when there's too little trust and too little connecting us across difference and too little approaching each other to check ourselves and our projections of each other, we, we can't do that. Persuasion breaks. And I think that's where we are. We're out, we're out there trying to persuade, but we haven't worked to build the trust that's been lost. And so it's all just making it worse, right? So, so yeah. Um, so I, so it's less about, to me, it's less about kind of using these tactics as the end goal, right? That this is the only way to have conversations. It's, I think we're in a kind of adolescence with our discourse because we've just leveled things up so profoundly with our technology and with our access and everything we're discovering about each other's individual self and identity. And we didn't even talk about that, right? So because of all of that, we're kind of back to this adolescence and it's awkward and we're mad <laughs> and everyone feels misunderstood. And so we need to we need to work our way through that, right? Um, so that we can get an even stronger, mightier democracy and society that can thrive and can lead and can be amazing. Um, so that so that's it. It's like the, these tactics are about let's let's get there, let's rediscover that or or discover it anew, right? Because we're we're always trying to be a more perfect union. Cool. This is, I think, what it's going to take. You know, this kind of humility. Um, and I can't wait for the day where, you know, we can have around Thanksgiving dinner, the kinds of wild political conversations where it doesn't feel like you're cutting to the bone with every single thing you say, right? Where, where we've built up that resilience with each other. And we know there's love at the foundation and we're learning. So I have to subscribe to your viewpoint. I'm the president of a college that believes in fearless, open inquiry, Shalem College in Jerusalem. Typically, our classes are 25 students or fewer, and many of them are organized around great books. Uh, not all of them, but many of them are. So there are students who will be reading the Iliad or the Odyssey or Shakespeare wow. or the Quran or the Old Testament or the Talmud or a work of Western history. And I believe very much, as, as you just beautifully articulated, that on something that in theory has little emotional baggage, say what is really happening in, in the Iliad or what Homer may have meant mm -hmm. in the Odyssey or what the significance of that is for your daily life or one's daily life or the country we live in. Those are arguments that when we have them, 
knowledge emerges. It isn't taught. Mm. The knowledge is not taught. I don't believe, we don't want our professors here lecturing our students about what the Iliad really means or its significance or the Odyssey or any other text because that kind of knowledge doesn't, I don't care how much literature they've read about those books or how smart they are, how educated they are, as you said, that's not where wisdom comes from. Wisdom comes from you grappling with the text in the company of other similar uh, people and exactly. wisdom emerges. It is not thrust upon you. When it's thrust upon you, you don't remember it and you don't own it. And when you're allowed to let it emerge, it it's real and you own it. And your thinking changes. Your understanding is enhanced. I believe that. But I didn't believe that I couldn't work here. And I believe that is the idea of uh, conversation. It's the idea behind what used to be called real education, what used to be real education. Mm -hmm. And it should be the idea behind democracy. It only goes back, you know, a few thousand years to Plato, et cetera. And yet, um, I would just throw in John Stuart Mill. Uh, if you haven't read On Liberty lately, read it. Um, the Which is about this question of disagreement and how truth emerges from and understanding emerges from disagreement. And yet, I think most people don't agree with it, don't believe in that anymore. They obviously don't believe it is the way they used to on a college campus. Um, you quote David Smith. It's a great quote. Uh, the question, which do you value more, the truth or your, or your own beliefs? Most of us, again, hardwired probably, we like our own beliefs a lot more than the truth. And we don't trust that conversation to create that understanding or, and wisdom because we're afraid. Uh, we might find out we're wrong, and that hurts. That's right. Uh, yes. And I think when you get to a, you can if you work at it, you get to a point where it doesn't hurt, it delights because you realize yes. you can learn something. That's really the point of your book. It, you know, and it, what it, it's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And the book's called "I Never Thought of It That Way," and that moment of exhilarating awareness is an enormously extraordinary, beautiful human experience. And um, most of us are terrified of it. Mm -hmm. So, or we, or we, we tell ourselves it's not possible. There were some studies recently that showed how much we underestimate the delight <clears throat> of conversations. We keep underestimating that it'll be interesting, that it'll be fun. We just do that over and over again. And and I, yeah, I think it's true. We we just come in sort of with our own fears. Uh, and and right now, a lot of as you probably know, a lot of what's holding us back is this idea that engaging with the other side is going to make me a bad person. If I encounter bad people, if I encounter bad ideas, it's like opening a Pandora's box, I will be infected or I will allow the world to be infected. And, and so now that has come above, you know, this, this mandate to learn from each other and to have our opinions be in, in generous communion with each other. We're going, no, there's toxic, poisonous opinions and we got to keep them away from each other. So now we're building up walls and we're forgetting. To, it's that, it's exactly what you said. It's a can we get to a place where we trust each other again? That we have to we have to build this trust in the conversation that that ideas don't infect as easily. Bad ideas don't infect as easily as we might think. That looking looking at bad ideas generously is more about looking at the people who hold them generously, which by the way makes them more intellectually humble. There's been research on this too that I'm so into right now where if if someone just brings to mind a person in their life who tends to receive their ideas generously, not agree with them, but just, just listen, show them they matter. That person will become more intellectually humble, meaning they'll, they'll be more likely to, you know, let some 
breathing room appear uh, around their ideas so they could consider others. This is healthy persuasion. But we cannot, we cannot begin at this place of you're lost, you're evil. If I engage with you, I lose myself. Like imagine, you know, I'm a journalist. If, if that had been true, how many you know, people who have done unsavory things have I talked to and tried to help their communities understand? And if it were true that my witnessing somebody's story is a bad thing or makes me a bad person, imagine everything we wouldn't know about each other. Like we've got, we've got to get past this, you know? Um, well, you have a nice yeah. mantra toward the end of your book, which um, uh, I like to think is my mantra. It's nice to see it expressed so succinctly. Uh, it's three words, honesty, curiosity, mm -hmm. respect. Um, I would add humility, which you would too if you had a longer – it's a sign you carried. So if you had a bigger sign, you probably would have added humility. But um, each, part, each piece of that is so important, and the respect part I think is often – the hardest part for us in those in those interactions, given the current climate of the dopamine we want from our followers on social media and so on. Um, but it's everything. It really is everything. It really is. Really, really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we think of respect as like, well, if I, I don't respect that idea, so I can't possibly respect the person enough to listen to them. I can't make them think they matter because then they'll think that I validate their idea. And that, what will people say about me? Will I actually create new harm in the world? And by the way, it's worth saying, these insecurities are very understandable. The adolescence we're going through now is not just about technology and communications platforms. It's, it's about the norms that are being shaken up. Uh, it's about the new knowledge that is coming in. It's about more things being put into tension that we're just not used to. Uh, while we're, the world is going through all kinds of crises, it's shaking. It really is shaking our faith in, in all kinds of things, all kinds of things that we used to just take for granted. And so that's tough. That's going to be hard. We're going to get scared. Um, we're going to wonder if we need to just do something different. And, and we're going to wonder if this idea, this democratic ideal of, conversation and open-mindedness, maybe that's wrong. Like, I think some people are honestly in that space and not because they, they don't like everything it's given us, but because they're afraid it's leading us somewhere dark if we're not more vigilant. What does more vigilance mean? And to me, more vigilance is <clears throat> it's not leaning away. It's leaning in even further. It's right to the thing that scares you most. And, and I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I don't see another way out. It's easy to forget that, um, that the other side is as self-righteous as you are. And if they have all the authority, that world's going to be just as bad um, yeah. as, as the one you think you're in now. It'll actually a lot worse. So, so monopoly for the right side is really bad. It's democracy and competition among ideas that creates um, good outcomes. And it's hard to trust that process, right? Uh, and yeah. I think one of the challenges of democracy in the United States right now is the loss of trust that the other side will play fairly, and therefore, when you're in power, you have to do everything you can to, to, to get your side as far ahead, so that when they come in, they won't be able to catch up. And um, that's a lack of respect, obviously, and um, that could turn out well. Really, going to turn out very dark. It's going to be a, a a very dark outcome, in, in my view. Uh, let Let's close with the reaction your book has received. If you can share it, you, you live in Seattle. We, we've talked about Seattle has a certain, on average, mindset. 
and and perspective on the political policy space. Uh, are people do they like your book, or is it too other uh, both? Is there too much both sidesism for uh, mm. for 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 a lot of people that that you are respectful of the other side that you do imagine that you could be wrong? Uh, do, do you know? I'm talking to me. It's like yeah, go go. That's right. Yeah, and but I think probably a lot of people who find that not just they don't agree with it, they find it offensive. Are you getting any of that reaction? I am getting some of that reaction, and honestly, that's the thing I'm most curious about right now. I'm I'm finding myself obsessed with that reaction. Uh, So, for example, I I saw a review uh, from a woman who said, you know, well. You know, I, I guess, I guess I, uh, yeah, she, she wrote this book, I guess, before Roe v. Wade was overturned, um, which makes sense because, you know, there's no way that she would support, um, engaging with the other side when the other side doesn't support your humanity, doesn't support your rights. You know, clearly that's, that's a step too far. She didn't address that. So, you know, and if she had, she would have agreed with me that that's a big fat red line. And, you know, as soon as we can say that, that they don't respect our humanity, clearly the only way to maintain our dignity and self-respect is to not engage. Uh, but that's not what I would say at all. Um, but that's, that is one of the, that is one of the criticisms. I, I anticipated a lot more of this type of reaction of, you know, she's an apologist. She just wants us to come to the middle. She right. wants us to moderate our views. Not at all. Not at all. We need we need open mindedness all across the spectrum, y'all. It's no good for us just in the middle. <laughs> that's, that's silly. Um, but but I I understand I understand where this comes from. But the most the most encouraging thing to me, honestly, I thought this was going to be a lot lot louder than it is. Is um, you know I've been on conservative podcasts. I, I went on Glenn Beck. It was a fascinating conversation with Glenn. I've been on liberal podcasts. I've been on libertarian podcasts. I mean, these are you know partisan. Partisan groups who feel at war, but see that this is important. See that the ideas here are important. See that there have to be ways that individual people take up the reins here, that we don't just wait for politicians to figure it out or media to figure it out. I think a lot of people are in that place. Um, and that's just, that's just not going to be useful. The other barrier that I get too is, I remember I was on this very, very like liberal podcast, you know, this group, um, the Daily Coast podcast, uh, Progressives Online. Yeah. And there was this tension building up um, and and a lot of, you know, uh, just kind of scrunched faces. And and finally, I said, you don't have to talk to a Nazi tomorrow. And there was this just tension relieving <laughs> laughter. Oh, thank God. <laughs> she doesn't want us to talk to a Nazi tomorrow. No, you know, but I think when when we come into things so afraid, we tend to think of the absolute straw manning. We think of the worst possible thing and we argue from there. You want me to talk to the devil? Is that that's what you want? Let me tell you all the ways that's terrible. Right? But but we can't we can't begin there. We can't begin there. There's there's no way. Uh you you make um to quote John Powell, uh there's a, a pastor who came to a brilliant man named John Powell at the Othering and Belonging Institute who said John, are you asking me to bridge with the devil? And John said, maybe don't start there. Don't start with the devil. Do the shorter bridges, do the smaller bridges. And then he says, and after a while of doing those shorter bridges, you may ask yourself who you're calling the devil. And that that's what I think it is, is we, we of course, we have these monsters in our heads and you know, and we're afraid. And it may seem like that's what I want you to do. I want you to put yourself in the presence of a monster and be hurt 
why would, why would anyone want that? You know, and it's also worth saying each of us absolutely has our own calculation. Nobody can tell you or force you to be in a conversation you're not ready for. You don't feel comfortable in. There's plenty of political disagreements that amount to a rejection of your own identity. I get that. I feel that. You know, that's a lot harder. And, uh, and that's on you, but you don't, you don't have to go to that, you know, talk to your friend who agrees with you on everything, but one thing and have the conversation about that, or don't even have a conversation with a person, have the conversation with yourself, get more curious. And next time that you read an article that is all about a perspective on the other side of yours, ask yourself as you read it, what is the deep down honest concern that this person is trying to communicate? Um, you know, make sure that you don't vilify that person as you read them. Listen to them generously. Even that will make a difference. So these are small steps. There's not talk to a Nazi tomorrow. No <laughs> one's got to do that. We're good. I think in your um, trip to Oregon, if I remember correctly, you started off with people talking about their families. What was the opening conversation about? Do you remember? Your favorite childhood memory. We had people talk to each other about your favorite childhood memory so that they humanized each other before they got into opinion versus opinion. And I don't think the devil has one. So, you know, if if you are in the presence of the devil and you try that and they, they can't come up with a childhood memory, then you know you probably should back away. But in most <laughs> other human situations, uh, you know, everybody had a mom. It's... Um, mm-hmm. Or had a bad one, you know, or had a mm-hmm. childhood trauma, which would be the other way to go. What's your favorite, not favorite, but what's your least favorite moment as a child? We all have wonderful mm-hmm. and char- challenging memories of, of our childhood. Not me, actually. My mom, I have none. No challenging ones. My mom was, is and mm-hmm. was a saint when I was young. So I don't have anything negative to say about my mom. But if it's the devil... Mm-hmm. Uh, then you're probably, like you say, back away, start somewhere else. But most human beings have a childhood memory. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If you dare, dare to approach, and you might be pretty surprised what you'll find. My guest today has been Monica Guzman. Her book is I Never Thought of It That Way. Monica, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you so much, Russ. Russ has been fun. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>